So, Wes Duggins is my favorite preacher. I don't think I've hidden that uh, fact. And Wes Duggins preached my favorite sermon. Uh, This had to be, I don't know, five or six years ago, something like that. Um, It was a single sermon on the entire book of Revelation. And I thought maybe he was tackling too much. Um, but it was brilliant and beautiful. And the reason I loved it so much was because having that framework allowed me to then go approach the individual passages in Revelation and be able to fit them within that framework. Does that make sense? So immediately after the sermon... I, uh, uh, I say immediately, a couple days after the sermon, I reached out to Gary and I said, hey, do you have a, the recording of that uh, message? And alas, the recording equipment had failed that week. And I just was in a state night unto despair. And, um, and so I said, Wes, please give me your outline. And he handed me a piece of paper that maybe had like 14 words on it. And so, since then, Brett and I have referred to that sermon as the sermon of which the world was not worthy, because we can't actually find it anymore, but that's neither here nor there. What I want to do today is I want to give you a framework for understanding the rest of the book of Matthew. Um, I want to sort of go really high altitude today, and I want, you to show the sh- I want to show you the shape of Jesus' life and ministry Uh, as it's recorded in the book of Matthew. And I want to give you tools to understanding that shape so that as we continue to uh, progress through the book of Matthew, you're going to see how individual episodes within that story fit. Does it make sense? Now, I also want to practice what we've been learning recently, namely uh, how to understand Matthew's use of the Old Testament. I made the claim last week that you cannot understand Matthew's book if you don't understand how he's using the Old Testament. And I want to go ahead and repeat that sentence in a couple different ways because I want you to understand what I think is the significance of this notion. The second, Matthew is teaching you about who Jesus is and what he's done and what that means. And he's primarily using Old Testament stories, prophecies, and characters to do it, okay? Now, if that's true, then this sentence must mean something to you. To fully grasp the nature and the character and the work of Jesus, you've got to be able to trace these shadows. Does that make sense? Three ways of saying the same thing. Matthew is so dependent on the Old Testament that if you, if you do not grasp how he's using the Old Testament, it's actually very difficult to to understand what he's trying to say about Jesus. Okay. So, this morning what we're going to do is we're going to pivot off of one of his references. One that we read last week, which was a citation of Hosea 11. Right as Jesus is sent down to Egypt to be delivered from death because of the oppression of Herod, uh, and, 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 and then delivered from that... Uh, that time in Egypt after Herod's death, Matthew says these words, this was to fulfill 
what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. And then we, we went back and we glanced at Hosea 11. And Hosea 11.1 1 reads, When Israel was a child, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. Okay. Now this is a seed here. Matthew has just suggested that that the call of Egypt or the call of Israel out of Egypt was was actually fulfilled in Jesus. Right? You, you tracking with me? The call of Israel was fulfilled in Jesus. So I've got this I've got this thought here as I'm reading Matthew chapter 2. I, I suspect that we're starting to be able to trace a shadow here. And what is that shadow? I think we see the shadow that Jesus is the better Israel. Okay? I think that's what Matthew is suggesting. That Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's call to righteousness. That Jesus is the better Israel. So I have that gut instinct, but that is not enough to make the claim that, that Jesus is the better Israel. Just, just that I, I think I might see it. Right? We gave ourselves last week rules to govern how we decide what might or might not be a shape and a shadow that is relevant to our understanding of who Jesus is, okay? And we gave you three rules, all right? If you think you see a shadow, great, fantastic. It means you're actually reading closely the Scriptures. If you think you see a shadow that might inform who Jesus is and what Jesus is like, fantastic. But answer three questions before you make claims. First, do you have biblical warrant? Which means, are other biblical authors making conclusions and suggesting shapes like this, okay? Second is their correspondence. Is the shape of this story similar to the shape of the story that you're referencing, okay? And then third is their escalation. Do you see a greater than fulfillment in Christ, all right? So those three rules we've given ourselves to sort of gauge whether or not a shape might be a shadow, Okay? And if it is a shadow, we need to jot it down, put it in the margins, use it to explore and understand the Scriptures, right? But, but if, it can't, if you can't answer these three questions, if you don't see these three questions answered in, in, the, in the Scriptures, then, then you just toss that aside. Okay? So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to try and develop a framework to understand the book of Matthew by answering these three questions about This notion that Jesus is the better Israel. Okay? Okay. Let's get started. Biblical warrant. Do other biblical authors suggest that the Messiah will fulfill the righteous call of Israel? Okay? That if if the answer to this question is yes, then that's our first. Okay, keep going, keep progressing. Do other biblical authors seem to suggest that the Messiah is fulfilling the righteous call to Israel? I think yes. All right, and we're going to look at three passages very quickly um, to uh, to bolster that opinion. Okay, Isaiah forty-two. You may turn there if you'd like. I'm going to read it to you either way. Isaiah forty-two, verse five. Through nine. I'm going to read from verse 1 so you have a little bit of context. Okay? This is the prophet Isaiah, and he's talking about the suffering servant. The suffering servant is 
probably what I think is probably the most explicit prophecy about who Jesus is and what he's going to do in the entirety of the Old Testament. Um, if you ever went and saw that movie, uh, 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 oh shoot, The Passion of the Christ, it starts with a quotation of Isaiah 53, and Isaiah 53 is about the suffering servant. Okay, so I'm going to start from verse 1. Behold my servant, this is God speaking, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Does anybody at this point have any doubt that this is referring to Christ? Okay. Now, let's read from verse 5. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people upon it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. Okay. Ears perked. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. Okay, so we now know that that this is God speaking to the servant. This is not God speaking to his people. Okay? Because he says, I will give you as a covenant for the people. A light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. From the prison, those who sit in darkness. Okay, so, so God speaking to his servant says, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. Okay? God will give his servant as a covenant for the people. Well, hang on, the people already have a covenant. Right? A covenant which they were not able to fulfill. But the suffering servant was called in righteousness and he will be given as a covenant. Okay? So this is my first clue that that other biblical authors are suggesting that the Messiah will fulfill the righteous call of Israel. Alright? Tracking? Sorry, I'm moving quickly because I don't want to preach for an hour and ten minutes this time. (laughs) Alright. Galatians 3.16. I'm going to jump ahead to... The New Testament. Galatians 3.16. This is Paul speaking. And he says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Who's the offspring of Abraham? Who's the offspring of Abraham? Trick question. Israel, right? And Christ. Listen, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. Okay? So God's promises to Abraham were actually, even though they were promises to Abraham and referring to his offspring, were actually fulfilled in Christ. They were promises made to Christ, who was the fulfillment of Israel's righteous call. Okay. One more. Hebrews 2, 10 through 16. Hebrews 2, 10 through 16. I, don't, I, I think I, I see here that, that both Isaiah and Paul are suggesting 
that the Messiah, Christ, is, uh, is the fulfillment of Israel's righteous call and therefore the uh, recipient of the promises made to Israel. Okay, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why He, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in Him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that He helps, but He helps who? The offspring of Abraham. Okay? So this is, this is the author of Hebrews referring to Jesus who was sent to help the offspring of Abraham who were laboring under a curse. And He took on flesh and fulfilled the righteousness and bore the wrath so that they hadn't any longer any reason to fear. Okay? You tracking? Okay, I think this is three different ways that three different authors of the Scriptures say that Jesus, the Messiah, was sent to fulfill the righteous call of Israel. Alright? So I think this qualifies as biblical warrant. Alright, let's keep moving. It's a biblical warrant. We need correspondence. Alright? Correspondence. Is the shape of Jesus' life similar to the shape of Israel's history. All right, now this is where it gets real fun. Turn with me to Psalm 106. I want you to read it with your eyes and with your ears. Psalm 106. Hold up your Bible when you're there. Awesome. All right. I'll get started. Praise the Lord. O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all His praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I might look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Now listen to this. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet He saved them for His name's sake, that He might make known His mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry, and He led them through the deep as though through a desert. So He saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed His words and they sang His praise. 
But they soon forgot His works. They did not wait for His counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and God, and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the holy ones of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered up the company of Ibiram. Fire also broke out in their company and flames burned up the wicked. They made a calf at Horeb and worshipped the metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for an image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore He said He would destroy them had not Moses, His chosen one, stood in the breach before them to turn away His wrath from destroying them. Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in His promise. They murmured in their, tan- in their tents. They did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore He raised His hand and swore to them that He would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. Then they yoked themselves to Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds and plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and intervened and the plague was stayed and he was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. They angered him at the waters of Merib and went ill with Moses on their account for they made his spirit bitter and he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They, be, they served the idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, to whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with their blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against His people, and He abhorred His heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought in subjection under their power. Many times He delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes, and they were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, He looked upon their distress when He heard their cry. For their sake He remembered His covenant." and relented according to the abundance of His steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to Your holy name and glory in Your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Okay. So we blew through that really quickly, but I want you to see a structure here. This is structured to follow carefully, paragraph by paragraph, through the entire history of Israel. All right? And if you have time later this afternoon or sometime this week, go through and in your margin, write, write all the stages of Israel's history and as they rebelled against God in that stage, okay? But I'm going to give you a hint. Here's what I see going on in this passage we have an initial praise. God who will save His people. That's a, that's a faithful, prophetic claim that God will save us despite ourselves. Okay? And then an admission that we and our fathers have sinned. And at this point, the author of this song goes through every stage of Israel's history. The Exodus, 
passing through the waters, the Red Sea, the wilderness, the law, the promised land, the wrath of God because of sin, and the exile. Right? All of these things are called out in this song. And the author of this song means for the people of Israel to see, man, at every opportunity, the Lord revealed His steadfast love, and yet I turned away. Okay? And then this final plea, save us, O Lord our God. So, we see in this passage that the people of Israel were called to righteousness. Listen to this. Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Who among the people of Israel received this blessing? Huh? Who among the people of Israel observe justice and do righteousness at all times? Zero. Okay, instead of doing righteousness at all times, Israel sinned at all times. At every stage, both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Now, we have, I, I chose this passage, Psalm 106, so, because it very quickly and efficiently just sketches out the shape of Israel's history. Okay, we've got the shape of Israel's history down really quickly. So, now our job, if we're going to find correspondence, is we're going to look in the book of Matthew and we're going to try and identify that shape in Jesus' life. Okay? So, open up to Matthew 2. Matthew 2. We're going to stay in Matthew for the rest of the time. We read this last week, so it's not going to come as a surprise to anyone. Christ, in order to be saved by the saved from death by the oppression of Herod, is sent to Egypt. And then when Herod is defeated in death, he's drawn back up from Egypt to the promised land, right? We see in Matthew 2 an Exodus shape. And it's made explicit. This is not. This is not really savvy reading. Uh, Out of Egypt I called my son. That every reader of the Old Testament says, Exodus, Exodus here. Okay. So Matthew 2, we see in Exodus, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, turn one page. Actually, it might be on the same page. Chapter 3. Chapter 3. Just as soon as we see a glimpse of of Jesus fulfilling the Exodus shape, right? Fulfilling the Exodus shadow. John the Baptist is baptizing at the Jordan. And what happens to Christ in this passage? Do you remember? He, He passes through the waters. I want to read you this passage. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Do you think it's an accident that right on the heels of the Exodus, Christ enters and emerges from the waters? 
Maybe. Maybe I'm on thin ice here. But we'll keep reading and see. Exodus chapter 2. Passing through the waters in chapter 3. Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit where? Where? Into the wilderness. So chapters 2, 3, 4. Exodus passing through the waters into the wilderness. And what happens in the wilderness? Temptation. How long is he in the wilderness? Forty days. One day for every year that Israel was in the wilderness. You think that's an accident? Do you think this is coincidence? Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Okay, I think we're starting to see the shape here. Exodus passing through the waters into the wilderness. Okay, well, in the wilderness, he, 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 he's faithful and he, he resists the temptation of the enemy. And, and what do you see in Matthew chapter 5? This is, this is just brilliant. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he taught the people. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Okay, okay. So if you thought I was on thin ice now, are you starting to see it form? Are you starting to see the shape form, right? The, it, Israel was called out of Egypt and they passed through the waters into the wilderness and they received the law, right? They received the law at the mountain. And then we have Christ being called out of Egypt and then He passes through the waters and He resists the temptation in the wilderness and then He ascends the mountain and He gives the law. He says, I'm not, I'm not here to abolish the law. I'm here to fulfill it. And then he gives not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. Okay? Tracking? Okay. The longest recorded sermon of Jesus is in Matthew 5 through 8. And he's carefully expressing the spirit of the law and calling Israel to faith. Okay, now, we see the broad, the biggest portion of the book of Matthew, Matthew 8 through 25. What is Jesus doing here? He's going from place to place within the promised land and he's cleansing. All right, let me read you this. That evening they brought to him, this is Matthew chapter 8, right on the heels of giving the law. He starts to. To, he leaves the mountain and he starts to go through the land of Israel. And what first thing you see, a leper runs to him and he cleanses the leper. And then we read, that evening they brought, him, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. Does anybody remember what Joshua and the people of Israel were called to do? Having received the law, having... having uh, passed through the wilderness, what were they called to do? Cleanse the land. Pass over the Jordan and cleanse the land. And it's not what they did. They, 
They actually enjoyed the pollution of the land. But not Christ. Every place he goes in the promised land, he's cleansing, cleansing, cleansing. Not just, by the way, illnesses. Not just, by the way, demonic oppression. He's, he's pointing out idolatry. He's saying, repent. People come up with questions and he's like, your heart's evil. <laughs> your heart needs change. Right? Idolatry. You can't, you can't actually like corner Jesus because he sees right through to your heart. Okay? He's cleansing. He's cleansing the heart of the people. He's cleansing uh, the, the curses of the law. What happens in Deuteronomy 28 when, um, when the people fail? I think it's 28. You'll have to check me on that. Deuteronomy has blessings and curses. If you fail to keep the law, what happens? Your bodies start to break down. There will be no peace for you. When Christ arrives, what happens? Peace. Healing. Freedom. Right? Christ was... Jesus. The better Joshua. Same word, really, by the way. Jesus, the better Joshua, cleanses the promised land. Okay. And then Matthew 26. Jesus bears the wrath of God. When they mocked Him... They stripped him of the robe and they put on his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. We're following the structure of Psalm 106 right now. But we're seeing that structure and the shape of that structure in in Christ's life and work. Right? In Exodus, he passes through the waters. He he faithfully resists temptation in the wilderness. He, He gives the law to the people of Israel. He he cleanses the promised land and He endures the wrath of God on their behalf. Matthew 27, the exile. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Three days. Three days in the depths. The shape of Jesus' life, you can lay that thing over the shape of the history of Israel. I don't think that's an accident. In order to rescue His people, Jesus had to fulfill their call to righteousness. And He did this by walking righteously through every stage of their rebellion. Okay, so I think that's correspondence. You may disagree. That's fine. But I think there's enough here shaped as the history of Israel to call this correspondence. So we have biblical warrants here and we have correspondence. What are we lacking? Escalation. So the shape of Matthew follows the shape of Israel's history to communicate that Jesus is fulfilling their call to righteousness at every stage of Israel's history. History, okay. So, is the work of Jesus greater than, more significant than, better than the work of Israel? Well, this one's just easy, guys. In the Exodus, Israel was delivered from slavery. Jesus was delivered from death. 
in the wilderness. Israel was tested and found faithless. Jesus was tested and found faithful. In the law, Israel broke the letter of the law. Jesus fulfilled the spirit of the law. In the promised land, Israel embraced the pollution of Canaan. Jesus cleansed the promised land. The wrath of God. God restrained His wrath to preserve His people. God poured out His wrath on Jesus to finally and permanently rescue His people. Amen. And in the exile, the penalty of Israel's wickedness was exile from the promised land. But Jesus bore the penalty of Israel's willingly enduring exile to redeem His people. I think that qualifies as escalation. Okay, so is Israel's call fulfilled in Christ? Yes, we have biblical warrant. Yes, we have correspondence. Yes, we have escalation. Our conclusion is that the shape of Jesus' life follows the shape of Israel's history to demonstrate that Jesus is the better Israel, fulfilling Israel's call to righteousness in order to redeem His fallen people. We can now say that confidently, and not only can we claim this confidently, but we can take this interpretive lens and we can read every stage of Matthew's book accordingly. Does it make sense? This framework was not accidental. Matthew didn't stumble into this. He didn't finish like Matthew 28. I'll be even to the end of the age. And then he looks back and he says, wow, look at that. <gasps> I mean, maybe he did. He was inspired, so the Spirit was working. But maybe he did, but every chapter of Matthew's narrative fits every chapter of Israel's history. And, and you're not supposed to ignore that. Actually, what you're supposed to see while you read every single page is to say, Jesus did it. Everything that they couldn't do, Jesus did that. All the call that, that, that haunts me at night. When I wake up at 2 in the morning and I can't sleep because I failed again, I failed again today, Jesus did that. Right? Okay. So why does that matter for you? Why Why does that matter for you? Let me give you a couple answers. First, if Jesus fulfilled Israel's call to righteousness, if Jesus fulfilled Israel's call to righteousness, then all of the promises conditional to Israel's righteousness are yes and amen in Christ. What, I don't need to give you an exhaustive list here because basically we're talking about like two-thirds of the New Testament. But I just want to show you what, what I think is a very cool example. Okay, Exodus 19. I'll just read it to you. You can look this up later. This is God speaking to His people. Listen. Now therefore, if... Listen. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In order to receive the promise, 
in order to become the treasured possession of God among all His peoples and to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, what had to happen? If you will obey My voice and keep My covenant. That did not happen. That did not happen. So this promise did not was not fulfilled by the obedience of the people of Israel. I want to read you something that Peter says. This is so cool. But you are. You are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for His own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Are. Right now. You are right now a people for His own possession. Now, let me ask you a question. Did the recipient audience of Peter's letter, did they obey God's voice and keep His covenant at every turn? No. So how was this promise fulfilled? Because of the righteousness of Jesus. Right? The righteousness of Jesus meant that Peter could say, hey look, God promised this conditional upon righteousness. If you're righteousness, then you shall be my treasured possession. That was God's promise. Well, we know that Jesus was righteous on our behalf. Therefore, we are right now. Right now, His treasured possession. Amen? You got an afternoon to kill. Just read the promises. Read the promises. There's a whole bunch of books. Most of them were written in the 90s. All the promises of God. Right? Read through them. Christ has done the good work of righteousness on your behalf. So you will enjoy those promises in His kingdom. Amen? Okay. Second. If Jesus fulfilled Israel's call to righteousness, then His people are free from the curses of the law. If Jesus fulfilled Israel's call to righteousness, then His people are free from the curses of the law. Let me, let me read from Romans 8. There is therefore now, there is therefore now no condemnation For those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sinning His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. You are free. And there's no condemnation for you. Sweetest words I ever heard in my life. We don't get this very readily, right? You're going to duff it Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, whatever. You're going to duff it. You're going to be rude or fussy. You're going to throw a fit and make a mistake. And haunting you is going to be this voice. The condemnation of God is on its way. Penalties are coming, man. Brace yourself. That voice is a lie. There is no condemnation for those in Jesus. If you are in Jesus, 
There is no condemnation for you. You are free from the law of sin and death. Alright, third. If Jesus fulfilled Israel's call to righteousness, then anyone who trusts Jesus will have fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law through him. Anyone. Anyone. Okay, here's what I mean. I thought this was a weird turn when I read this in Paul. Listen to what he says. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. There are some requirements of the law which are impossible for you to fulfill by virtue of you being a son of the nations. Christ fulfilled all of the righteousness demanded by the law. Christ fulfilled all of Israel's call to righteousness. And what that means for you and me is that we can be included in the new covenant. Amen? Anyone. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, read to Israel, might come to the Gentiles. So, hear me saying, if you are not in Christ right now, you could be. Run to Jesus. I say that all the time. Sometimes people are like, I don't know what it means to run to Jesus, which is great, because it's a very abstract way to say, ask Jesus a question. Ask Jesus questions. Ask Jesus to rescue you. Admit to Jesus you need him. And you could be included in the sweet covenant. You could be a treasured possession. Amen? All right. We're almost done. I want to just add a couple additional observations that aren't central, but worth stating, I think. First, yes, Christ is righteous on your behalf. And yes, you are free. There's no condemnation for you. And that's a great reason to stop sinning. Read Romans. Romans was written in part to a people who said, hey, if, if all of the condemnation of the law was poured out on Jesus, I can do whatever I want. The, the short answer is, nobody who treasures Christ thinks that way. No, nobody who's following Jesus thinks that way. If Christ's death was the cost of sin, nobody who follows Him enjoys sinning. Okay? So, don't do what many have done to hear this message of freedom and embrace a life of sin. Okay? Second, I love this illustration. This notion that Christ is fulfilling the call of Israel to cleanse the promised land. We see him carefully walking from town to town, having conversations with, with a lady at a, at a well, having 
dialogues with the Pharisees. We see him healing the lepers, opening the eyes of the blind. Just as Christ paced through the promised land, cleansing, so Jesus is cleansing your heart if you're in him. Jesus is cleansing your heart. Doesn't often happen overnight. Sometimes it does. I don't know why. Sometimes the Lord takes you from, from, from an outright wicked fool to a, to a wise and faithful son overnight. But that's the exception to the rule. Following Christ is a process of, of daily being cleansed from idolatry. Daily being freed from deception of the enemy. Okay? So use that picture and, and don't despair when you find yourself duffing it. Right? Don't despair. Christ is good. He's carefully walking with you. He's calling you. I think He's also showing us how much we need Him. Amen? Alright, let's pray. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.